Turn in your Bibles to Acts 26, verses 1 through 18 for our morning message. On October the 10th, 1520, uh, Martin Luther received the papal declaration, Excurge Domini, Rise Up, O God, uh, is the translation of the Latin, um, calling him to recant of his teaching. Uh, this led ultimately to a trial in Worms, Germany. And on April 18th of 1521, he stood before the great assembly of the Holy Roman Empire. He stood before the emperor himself and the assembled king, regional kings and princes of the empire as well as the authorities of the church. And standing there, uh, in what could only have been an extraordinarily intimidating audience, he took his stand, declaring in the immortal words, Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, God help me, amen. One of the great moments in human history. Uh, well, the Apostle Paul finds himself in very similar circumstances uh, because he is standing before as we're told in verse 23 of the previous chapter, King Agrippa and his wife uh, Bernice, as well as Festus, the governor, and uh, the prominent men of the city and the military tribune. So he has this great uh, assembly of civil, military, and religious authorities before whom he stands and now must defend his message and defend his ministry against the charges of heresy and sedition. And at the heart of the message is the account of the humanly inexplicable transformation of Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle, Saul the persecutor of Christians into Paul the prophet of the Christian religion, which he then universalizes. In verse 18, uh, the apostle uh, says that his charge from Christ was, quote, to open their eyes, the eyes of uh, the Gentiles and, and everyone for that matter to whom he preaches, so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, the Apostle Paul has a variety of ways that we have seen in the book of Acts whereby he summarizes his mission, summarizes his message, uh, summarizes his gospel. Uh, I believe he, he summarizes it this time in the way that he is because his own life, of which he will now describe, will illuminate the meaning uh, of, each of the each of the points that he highlights. And we'll be able to see together what, it, what that which is the Christian experience. The Apostle's experience is the experience, uh, ultimately, of every believer. This is what a Christian, uh, this is the transition, the transformation that a Christian goes through. Uh, so number one, uh, a Christian is one who has been turned from darkness to light. Uh, so that's the beginning of uh, verse 18. Uh, where he's charged to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. 
And so the Apostle Paul is going to explain this, elaborate this, illustrate it as it were, in terms of his own conversion. So let's go back to verse number one of chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand in what was a traditional rhetorical device and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate. Again, another rhetorical device being employed here to honor the the position that's occupied by those whom he is addressing, and in particular King Agrippa, because King Agrippa is Jewish. And so he says, I consider myself fortunate, and the translators, I think, would have done better not to use a word that the root of which is fortune, as though events were controlled by fortune, uh, but rather the the word is makarios, it's it's the word for for favor or or, uh, blessed. I I feel blessed uh, is really what he's saying. I consider myself blessed that in, uh, that, that is before you, King Agrippa, you being a Jew, I'm going to make my defense today rather than with Festus who was a Roman and doesn't understand the things that we're talking about. I make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, his Jewish opponents, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Uh, so this is, um, uh, this is uh, his familiarity with these things is not something that he fears. In other words, the Apostle Paul has a clear conscience. He, he believes he is on the side of right and truth. And so somebody that's familiar with the issues will be able to competently judge in a way that somebody was not familiar with the issues. Paul has nothing to hide. And so he can speak in a very familiar and direct way with Agrippa in ways he could not speak when he was addressing Roman uh, authorities. Therefore, the end of verse 3, I beg you to listen to uh, me patiently. Uh, So he goes into his background. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And this is the kind of background information that he gave as well back in chapter 22. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews. Uh, so what, the, what the, uh, the Apostle Paul is saying here is that the, the, the religion that he is proclaiming is the fulfillment of the hope of Israel that is rooted in the promise of God at the heart of which is the, the promise of a Messiah. And my, my hope is the hope of Israel, the hope of our 12 tribes, he says, of the, in other words, of the, the whole people of God. I, 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 I'm not unfamiliar uh, with the teachings of Judaism, he says. Look, I was, I was raised uh, at, at the feet of Gamaliel, the leading teacher of the day. I lived according to the strictest sect of Judaism. And I'm, what I'm saying is, what I am preaching is the fulfillment of the hope of the scriptures that I studied so carefully in my former life. And that hope is the same hope of all of Israel, the 12 tribes, there is that promise that was made, going back to 
going all the way back to the garden, that the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent, made to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the world would be blessed, repeated to, 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 the, to the fathers, he, he says. The promise made by God to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, to all the prophets and to David and to the kings of Israel, they all had their hope set on this provision of a Messiah. And anyone familiar uh, with the Judea of that day would know that this would be the truth because the, the whole region was, was rife with messianic expectation and there had been a number of messianic pretenders. And if you remember from Luke's gospel, the uh, Simeon and Anna both are described as those who were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah. They had their hopes set and they were eagerly anticipating uh, that, uh, that arrival of the promised deliverer, the promised uh, savior that would come and, and deliver the nation uh, from its bondage. So he's, what he's saying is, I'm not, I'm not preaching a new religion, not a different religion. This is not a heresy. What I, what I am proclaiming is the fulfillment of the hope that uh, we all have had for generations. And so the real question is, is Jesus that promised Messiah? I mean, still today, this is the difference between us and Orthodox Jews. We both believe that uh, the Old Testament is inspired of God. Uh, we believe that it is authoritative, that the law of God is normative for us. We try to live in, in, in accordance with uh, the teachings of the scriptures, we all agree upon that. that you, you could come right down to what is the issue that separates us from, from um, Orthodox Jews. It's whether or not Jesus is that promised one that still today they are anticipating, that they are hoping will come. And, and our view is, our understanding is, our conviction is, he's already come. That Jesus is that promised Messiah. He's the deliverer uh, that uh, you have hoped for. And as in previous sermons, uh, the Apostle Paul probably would have gone to Psalm uh, 2 and to Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 in order to identify Jesus with the promised Messiah that are found in these and, and, and in uh, other passages. Now, I say that understanding that, you know, when we, read the, when we read the speeches in the book of Acts, we're really reading the cliff notes we're getting a very abbreviated rendering of what was said that no doubt was elaborated at greater length. Uh, but here we're just, we're just getting a, a, a summary of what was said. And so these, these other passages would have, would have been cited by the Apostle Paul. And you can almost sense his exasperation in, 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 verse, in, in verse 8. Uh, he says, for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. The word Jews there is at the end of the sentence in the original language in the emphatic position as, as though, can you imagine that for this hope and the fulfillment of this promise, I'm being persecuted by Jews who ought to know better if they rightly understood what their Bible says. And then he goes on in verse 8, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? That's the, that's the real issue. This is what settles the question. Why do you think it's incredible? Well, many of them didn't think it was incredible. Uh, there are many ancient peoples believed in the resurrection of the dead. 
The ancient Germans did. The ancient Greeks did. Uh, the Pharisees, among uh, his contemporaries, they believed in the resurrection uh, of the dead. Why would you think it was incredible? Why would you think this is somehow beyond belief or be beyond uh, imagination? Why, why would you believe such a thing? Well, the answer is because they and others are blinded by prejudice. They're blinded by bias. In our day, people bring a, an anti-supernatural bias to the table, and they, and they just think that, well, anything that's supernatural, it, it can't be true. You know, Noah and the ark, Jonah and the whale, Jesus walking on water and multiplying the loaves. These are the kinds of things that were challenged uh, often during the great fundamentalist modernist debates of the 1920s. And the same kind of skepticism is still with us today. Uh, there's, an, there's this anti-supernatural bias, but there can be other biases as well. And what the Apostle Paul is saying in his uh, summary up to that point of his sermon, that he is being sent to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, is the reason why his countrymen have rejected Christ and don't believe in the resurrection is because of their bias. They're, they're intentionally closing their eyes. They're remaining in darkness. Remember, when the Apostle Paul was blinded on the, um, on the road to Damascus, you remember uh, that after a time, scales fell from his eyes. It was something of an enacted parable. It, it was as though to say, Paul, you were blind. You were blind. You were not able to see. You had this prejudice. You had this bias that was built in your opposition to the idea that Jesus was the Messiah. You could not conceive of a crucified Messiah. Your Messiah was a savior Messiah, a political Messiah who would deliver us from the Romans. And you couldn't fathom a crucified Messiah, a suffering Messiah. And so you missed it. You had this bias. And it was only when Jesus directly confronted him that then the scales, as it were, fell from his eyes. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that the problem that he had is the problem that everyone has and the problem that his fellow countrymen have. Let me cite some examples. He says in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 to 4, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has what? Blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of God, who is, who is the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What's the problem? What's the problem that is innate, that is built into the human condition? It's this, this blindness. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers they, so that they're not unable to see the light. Their eyes are not receptive to the, their spiritual eyes, as it were, are not receptive to the things of God. Colossians 1.13, Paul says there, Christ has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's, that's the world that we inhabit. It's a spiritually dark world. It's a domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Jesus says, John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness. In other words, lest you think that, well, we're just, we're just you know, hapless victims of eyes that don't see and, 
and, and, and, and that's why uh, we are described as blind, we're sort of victims of our condition. No, people loved the darkness. It's a, it's a chosen darkness. It's a preferred darkness. It's, it's the, we respond to the light of Christ like those who cover their eyes when the lights are flipped on in the middle of the night. We shield our eyes from it. Love the darkness rather than light because their works were evil, because we don't want the exposure. We don't want the light shining into the private corners of our life, exposing the things that we think, the things that we do. So this is, this is the human condition. I mean, things, biblically speaking, the Bible, Bible perspective is, you know, things are, things are clear. The existence of God is, is clear. Heavens declare his glory, his invisible attributes, eternal power and divine nature, all clearly seen, Romans 1, being understood through what has been made. Uh, the law of God is clear, Romans 2. The law is written on our hearts. Our consciences bear witness, accusing or defending us. We know right from wrong. It's built into, the, as, it, as it were, the fabric of human existence. The nature of Christ is clear. To see me, Jesus says, is to see the Father. We could argue the resurrection is, is clear. The problem with unbelief is not a problem of information. It's a problem of disinclination. It's, it's not that there isn't enough evidence, it's that we, we don't care to look at the evidence. We reject the evidence. Why? Because we're blind. Uh, because we're, we, we prefer to live in the darkness. Uh, because we choose not to see the light that is the light of Christ. Well, what happened in the apostles' life? How is it the change came about? You see, on the one hand, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, he, he cannot see cannot see those things. On the other hand, Jesus is the light of the world, the light of light, and Jesus came and shined the light of his truth into the life of the Apostle Paul, and so he does for all who believe. A Christian is one who is turned from darkness to light. Number two, the Christian is one who has turned from bondage to liberty. So continuing in, back at verse 18, uh, there he says, that they have turned uh, not only from darkness to light, but from the power of Satan to God. Now he's describing the human condition, the human problem, not as, 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 as blindness, but bondage. It's not just that we're blind, it's that we're bound. We're, we're, there, there's the problem of this power of Satan. We are captives of Satan, in bondage to Satan, under the control of his power. And as an illustration of that, he goes on, verses 9 through 11, uh, to describe his raging fury, his almost maniacal anger uh, against uh, the early Christians. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, 
But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I was in favor of executing these early Christians. And I punished them, often in all the synagogues, and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury, he says, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. You see, just Jerusalem, that was too small a stage for me. I pursued them with almost demonic energy to foreign cities. In other words, I was not passively opposed uh, to Christianity. I opposed it with all of my heart. Now, what's this, uh, what, what, what does this illustrate? Uh, it, it, it illustrates this power of Satan. Why was, why was he pursuing these things with, with all of this energy? Why was there such a fervor in his, his opposition? Well, let's look again at the verses we just read. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world has blinded. You see, there's supernatural evil. There are the forces of darkness. Colossians 1.13 delivered us from the domain of darkness. You see, there's this God of the world who blinds. There's this dominion, this power, this, uh, this controlling darkness to which fallen humanity is subject. Perhaps even more clearly, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2, where he says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That's another way of describing the devil. That's Satan he's talking about, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, we, we flatter ourselves, perhaps more now today, in our moment of history, we flatter ourselves uh, with claims of freedom. We, we think we do what we do because we choose uh, to do them. The self is unencumbered, must be unencumbered, uh, to do and to choose uh, whatever we wish to do and whatever we choose uh, to do, the expressive self. I, I, I am free to express myself and make of myself whatever it is I want to make of myself without any external restriction. So I choose my fashion. I choose my grooming. I choose my living space. I choose my sexual orientation. I choose my gender. I choose my identity. And see what the Apostle Paul is saying. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, what, what, uh, what are the sons of disobedience? What are the, what's the unbelieving d world do, doing? They are following the course of this world. They're just falling in line. They're just doing what the world is doing. Uh, the world is all essentially doing the same thing, and you're just following along. You think you're making your individual choices. You're autonomous. You're expressing your freedom. You're expressing who you are. No, you're not. You're just following the world. And who is the world following? You're following the prince of the power of the air. It's just the devil that's behind it all. The world is on its course, and the devil is, is, is driving that course, and, and you just fall in line. You think you freely have taught, uh, decided all of these things? No, the fact of the matter is you're in bondage. That's the human condition. You're a slave. Jesus says whoever sins is a slave of sin. John 8, 34. He says to the opposition, you are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. You know, you, you think that your opposition to me is something that, it's, it's just a matter of your own conviction. It's a matter of your own will. Uh, this, is, uh, this is how things fall out for you. And so you choose these things. Oh, no. No, you don't understand. You're in bondage to the devil. 
You don't, you don't understand that there's the world and the world is controlled by the evil one and, and you're just following right along with him. You're in bondage. You're a slave. Listen, listen to the way he describes um, to uh, Titus ad- addressing uh, those who are converted, uh, to speaking, uh, identifying the way they once were. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish. That's a summary of his life as a non-Christian and the life of everyone before they come to Christ and are sanctified by him, saved by him, delivered by him, transformed by him. Uh, We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Again, you see the language of slavery, the, the, the language of bondage. Uh, No, we flatter ourselves with all these claims of freedom and I'm expressing who I am and creating my own identity. No, you're following the course of the world. You're following the course of the prince of the powers of darkness. Whoever sins is a slave of sin. You're in bondage. You don't realize it. You're in darkness. Your eyes are blind and you're in bondage. That's the Bible's view. This is, this is the Christian view of things. This is what we were as unbelievers. We're not flattering ourselves by, by talking about how wise and illuminated we are. Now, that's not the point at all. The point is, this is what we were. And this is what we are apart from Christ. And this is what we face as we present uh, the gospel to an unbelieving world. The world, for all of its claims of liberty and freedom and so forth, Bondage is the reality. Blind to it, but bondage. Martin Luther, for his, uh, for, for his matter, said, Did we in our own strength confide? We'll be singing this this evening. Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Well, why? why would we be losing? Because in the first stanza he left off talking about the devil... His craft and power are great and, and, and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. There's the problem. There's the problem of the human condition. There is this devil, his craft, his power, his hate, unequaled in earth. And so dost ask who that may be, that man of God's own choosing, that we so desperately need Christ Jesus, it is he. So we've been turned from bondage to liberty, and then thirdly, turned from alienation to new life. And a new place, as it were. The Christian has been given a new life. We're no longer alienated from God. We're now in a right relationship with him. Negatively, we've been delivered from darkness and the dominion of the devil. Positively, we now have a new life. The forgiveness of sins, which separated us from God, he goes on in verse 18 to describe. Uh, we've, we've gone from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that we may receive forgiveness of sins and a place, a very precious place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So the sins that separate us from God, uh, they have been removed. We've been reconciled to God. We've been given this place or this inheritance with the people of God. We have a new life and a new community. By faith in Christ. And so he tells the story of that. Verse 12. In this connection. 
I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests in order to persecute Christians. Verse 13, at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Absolutely life-changing, transforming encounter. But rise and stand upon your feet. Stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and in those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. He tells the story, he, this new life that, that he has. There's a couple of things to recognize about this decisive encounter, which is unique in many senses, but then in others, it's just common to us all. First, it didn't come easily. Look at verse 14, kick against the goads. What's that a reference to? Well, when oxen are first uh, yoked to a, a cart or a plow, they kick against it and try to kick themselves free. And so sharp sticks are put where the feet would kick so that when they kick, the sharp pain is the result and they learn not to kick. And so what the Apostle Paul is, rather what Jesus was saying on the Damascus Road indicates the Apostle Paul already had pangs of conscience. He was kicking against the goads. He was, he, he, his conscience was bothering him uh, that what he was doing was not right, what he was doing was wrong, that, that these Christians might be right. And he couldn't face that reality. And so he became, it, 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 it's a, the, the psychology of it is, it, 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 it provoked in him the rage against those early Christians. They were kicking, he was kicking against the goads and the pain would, he would want to remove the source of the pain, the goads. Uh, the, Christian, the Christian teachers and preachers, the Christian religion, he wanted to remove the source of his pain. And so he raged against the early church. I think it's an important psychological insight. I think it explains so often why people will respond with rage to Christianity and why the Christian religion has been persecuted all through the centuries. Because there is within everyone the sense of the true knowledge of God and a true knowledge of the law of God. And it was suppressed in the Apostle Paul. He furiously opposed the gospel. He describes himself as a blasphemer and persecutor and violent oppressor. And likewise, when people hear the Christian religion, and particularly in our day, the moral code, you see, it's the moral opposition uh, to Christianity that is the tip of the spear, as it were, in opposition to the Christian religion. About the sanctity of life. Our uh, patriarchal families our heteronormativity, as they would call it, our opposition to transgender ideology. You can, you can see this today. It, it provokes a response of fury. Why? Because they're kicking against the goads. The yoke of Christ is seen as too restrictive, too confining, as suffocating. And so there's anger, there's rage. 
and a desire to silence, to cancel that voice, to eliminate that platform, and to silence it once and for all and remove the source of the, of the, of the, of the afflicted conscience. So it did not come easily for the Apostle Paul, and it often doesn't come easily for us because there is a call to repentance, and repentance is not easy. Uh, to be said that our lifestyle is wrong, to, to, to say that our decisions have been mistaken, uh, that, that we're on a course that is self-destructive and from which we must turn and must repent and turn to God and, sub, and submit to his authority and surrender to the Lordship of Christ, that's a difficult, that's a difficult path to take. It's a difficult choice to set before people. So Paul's conversion didn't come easily. Jesus is saying on the Damascus Road, Paul, you are kicking against the goats. He already was doing it, leading up to this encounter. And so it is for many others. But conversion did come, and decisively. And his life was set in a new direction, a new path, a new calling. He would be a witness of Christ, a servant of Christ, and an agent of further revelation. This is the Christian experience. There's that which is distinctive to the apostle. But then there's that of, of which he describes that's characteristic of us all. And would be characteristic of all who would come to Christ. Your darkness would be enlightened. Your blindness would be healed. Your bondage would be broken. Your liberty would be secured. Forgiveness would be granted. Reconciliation with your maker would be experienced, new life in Christ would be enjoyed. There would be a total makeover. And it's to this transformation and this new life that the Apostle Paul is inviting Agrippa and Festus and the great ones of the earth who have assembled to hear what he has to say. And it's to that new life that we invite you this morning Come and receive the enlightenment of the light of life. Uh, come and, and receive the truth which Jesus says shall set you free. True freedom. Uh, come and receive the forgiveness of your sins and reconciliation with your maker. As we pray together. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice, O oh Lord, in uh, these great, great gospel truths, this good news. We rejoice, O oh Lord, in this good news for humanity, for us all. And oh, that it would be embraced even to the ends of the earth. That the whole creation would cry out that Jesus is Lord. And it's in his strong name that we pray. Amen.